I think it's fair to say that routines are necessary to our lives. Routines are necessary to our lives. They bring balance and structure. And they even allow for a little chaos now and then. And perhaps you have a routine that you engage in every day to get ready for the day. Perhaps you get up and and you read your Bible and then you have breakfast and then you kind of take your shower and get ready for the day. Or perhaps you just kind of wing it. You get up and you move and, and then you keep going. Perhaps you have a, a routine when you're addressing a problem. You, you go through certain steps in your mind that, okay, this is the problem, this is the solution, how am I going to work it out? And that's your routine. While routines are necessary for life, and I would encourage you to establish them, because without routines you're not successful in life, so it is the same for spiritual life. We have to have routines in our spiritual lives if we're going to be successful. And I think, I think we've seen that as we've been studying this section of Ephesians. God is, has been challenging me, has been challenging you, I hope, to have routines when it comes to spiritual things. That's going to help us succeed. And no less we have that this morning in front of us from Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. And the challenge that I think is before us is that we must instinctively conduct our lives like the new man we are in Christ. We must instinctively or inherently conduct our lives like the new man we are in Christ. You say, Pastor, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to inherently or instinctively live my life like the new man I am in Christ? I'm going to give you three routines that you can follow. Three routines I believe Paul lays out here before us this morning to help us do this. The first one is that we mimic God. He says there in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And some of you are saying, well, pastor, that's, that's a challenge. I mean, God is perfect and I am not. Well, you're right, it is a challenge. And I think we'll see what Paul means here in discussing this verse. We've seen it before. Paul uses the word therefore. And I think we can sufficiently say that this is all part of walking like God's new man, the calling that he has on our lives. Paul, if you remember going back to chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. Mimicking God, copying God is part of that in our conduct, in our, in our, our daily life. It, this is all the outworking of chapters 1 through 3. This is how we look, work out our theology. This is how we work out going back to chapter 2, verse 1, and you he made alive. This is how we work out living. This is how we work out in chapter 2, uh, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Christ has made peace, and now how do we live that out? Verse 19 of chapter 2, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. 
So how do you live that out as a, as a fellow citizen with, with Jews and Gentiles together? And I hope you've seen through our discussion in Ephesians that theology is important to life. My question for you as a, just kind of a sub-point here, are you embracing theology and applying it to your life. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor, that's a big word, theology. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean, are you embracing the truth of God's Word as practical to your life? Because the two go together. Truth, theology, slash theology, and life, they go together. You cannot abandon the one for the other. They both work together. You incorporate, for example, as we've been working through Ephesians Ephesians, are you incorporating the truth of salvation, the truth of you, who you are in Christ, that you have been made one and part of a new body? Are you living that out in your daily life? Secondly, Paul describes here that the believer is to imitate every aspect of God and his character. Be imitators. It's a command here. And with a command, there are no options. If you're in the military and we have some of our members here who have served in the military, you know that when you were given a command by your superior officer, you did not have the option to refuse it. You couldn't say, no, I'm not going to do that. Although I didn't hear of one situation recently where, I will not name the person, one did refuse an order and he was right in doing so. But you don't normally do that. You do not refuse an order. You obey it because it comes from a superior officer and you're supposed to obey the command. Well, here is the same thing. There's no options. We are to be imitators of God. We say, Pastor, what does that mean? The word, the word imitate can also be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one of the same word used, where Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The, the classical definition of this word in the original language uh, means a copier, an actor who impersonates, or in the, in the bad sense, an imposter. So I'm gonna, uh, you, you say, Pastor, I'm still confused. All right, let me simplify it for you. The definition is to imitate a good role model. And here in the context, the good role model is God. It's much like what happened in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where it says, and the disciples were first called Christians, in Antioch. The word there is little Christ. And it was used as a derogatory term because those who were outside the faith were looking at them and mocking them, saying they were just like Christ. And they, therefore they were successful imitators of Him. Now I, I want to encourage you with something that I need to say, and that it's this. We will never be able to fully imitate God, will we? God is perfect. We are not. We see this in the Old Testament, Exodus 33, verse 20, but he said, you, uh, this is God talking to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Joshua, as he's leaving the children of Israel, says in Joshua 24, 19, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. God is so high and holy that we cannot attain to His character. Yet that does not negate the need for us by the power of the Spirit 
to act like God in, in daily life. See, a, a copier, an imitator, tries to copy someone else. If you've ever acted on a stage, I know that I have, both in high school and in a college, I took on a persona that was not mine. And even though I acted the part, I could never really attain the part because I was just trying to imitate the part. And the same goes for us when we mimic God. We will never fully be able to do it, but yet Paul encourages us to do it. Not perfectly, but increasingly. I would illustrate it this way. Have you ever been given a job that you thought you couldn't do, and the mere thought in your mind that you couldn't do it almost made you not do it? You know, the, the, the lack of the, the looking at the task and thinking, there's just no way I can do it, so I better not do it. That discouragement that comes along with just looking at something that you thought was impossible and therefore you were lacking motivation to do it just because you thought it wasn't possible. Well, the direct opposite is here. Even though the tasks before us is impossible to mimic God, to imitate Him in His, his character, And in his ways, we're still supposed to do it. We're still, to the best of our ability, imitate God. And this imitation is carried out in the manner of a child who is loved by God. Notice Paul says, as dear children. That that phrase, as, the conjunction there is to show the relationship between God and his children In other words, Paul is saying here, we are to imitate God as His children because we are loved by Him. We are loved by God. We have a unique relationship with Him as His child. The word loved here, or excuse me, the word dear here means to be dearly loved. And there there, there are different ways of describing this word. Most commentators note that that this word can describe the love given to an only child. And whether it's an only child or, or to many, the love that is given to children is special. And so it is with the love of God. 1 John 3 1 says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. You and I are loved by God. If you were His child this morning, God, God has saved you through His grace, and He's given you a new position with Him as His child, you are loved. Never, never forget that. You are loved as God's child. And that is a love that will never, ever go away. Amen? God's love will never, ever go away. And God loves you so much, and God has so much in store for you, John 3.16, that it should be a motivation as dearly loved children of God in, in suffering, in blessing, in encouragement, and in trial, we are to imitate Him. So that leaves me asking the question this morning, will you be committed and willing to imitate God in your daily life? And somebody say, Pastor, well, it's a big task. Yep, it is. But no matter how great the task, no matter how difficult it might seem, we're still supposed to do it. So I ask you, are you committed to that? Are you committed to being like your father 
in your daily life? And are you willing to do that? There's a reason I use these two words. We can be committed in our minds. We can say amen in the pulpit. But going out and doing it, that's something totally different. Are you willing to be committed? And are you willing to, to imitate God in your daily life? Thought and action have to go together here. Will you, this week, mimic God? Imitate God in your interactions with others, in your thought process, in your words, and in your conduct. So if we're going to instinctively conduct our lives like the new man, we need to mimic God. Secondly, second routine is that we are governed by love. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Several things to note about this. This is a command, okay? Not an option. We're to walk or govern, live our lives in love. Notice Paul says love, not service, not holiness, not any other characteristic you could name. He says love. And quite frankly, he's, he's, by doing this, he's saying love is our life. The word walk here means to live. We've seen it before. Conduct one's life. Walking worthy back in chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 17 of chapter 4. No longer walk. Lifestyle. The plural construction here in the the original language shows that this is for every believer. Everyone who claims the name of Christ is to walk in love or live in love. And we say, well, what is, what, is, what is the love here, Pastor? It is, is the idea of a quality of a warm regard for, warm regard for an interest in another. It is putting the interest of others ahead of yours. Putting their desires, their needs, their wants ahead of yours so that theirs are met before yours are. Now, in context here, what does walking in love look like? In context here is love for fellow believers, primarily. That's what Paul's been talking about. How, how, do we, how we live like the church. Well, the church body of Christ lives like loving each other, walking in love. But it's also to unbelievers. So either, either, either way, whether it's our fellow believers or unbelievers, we put our interests aside to love them beyond what is expected. To love them beyond what is expected. You know, there's, there's people expect to be loved in certain ways or expect to be, their needs to be met in certain ways. Well, we go beyond that. And it leads me to ask this question, are you putting limitations on your love? You know, some of us might think, well, I can only give so much or love so much and, and that's it for me. Well, scriptures say you love beyond that. You love till it hurts. You love it despite the lack of return on the other's part. So I ask you this morning, are you, are you putting limitations on your love as you're walking in love? Or are you willing to put their needs ahead of yours even to your own hurt? Our love 
is to mimic the love of Christ for us. As draws a comparison, as Christ also loved us. The same love that Christ showed you and I on the cross is the same love we're supposed to show to one another. That's what's supposed to govern our daily love, walking in love and our daily lives. Christ willingly offered himself in love and pleased God by doing so, and we're supposed to do the same. He gave himself for us. The, the, the idea of the word given or gave is to convey something in which someone has a strong personal interest. Christ gave himself for us, and he did it gladly with no regret. Do you realize that Christ loved you so much that he died on a cross and he did it without reservation? There was no hesitancy on Christ's part. He didn't have a list of pros and cons written out before he went to the cross. He just did it wholeheartedly. And I don't know about you, I'm thankful for that this morning. That Christ died for me and he did it without any regrets. He gave himself as an offering, a voluntary expression so not only did he go with no regrets, he went willingly, voluntarily. No one had to force him to do it. And he went as a sacrifice. Here the, here the Old Testament sacrificial system is brought to memory. As sinful humans brought an imperfect sacrifice to God to atone for their sins, so Christ offered himself perfectly to atone completely for our sins. He did it without reservation. He did it with voluntarily, and he willingly put himself as a sacrifice for us, taking our place. This is the ultimate definition of love, and that is what we are to aspire to. John 15, 13, Jesus says in some of his last words, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. So I ask you in pausing here, are you aspiring to that type of love? That love that, that, that is voluntarily, that is without regret, that lays down for the benefit of another. I'll tell you what, I, I don't love like that, as I should. But yet that is a standard of how I am to walk in love with such a love that people see Christ and what Christ did is the same pattern of love that I aspire to so that, that God is pleased for a sweet-smelling aroma. The end result is that God was pleased with Christ's sacrifice. The, the, the idea of the word sweet-smelling is, is something that affects the mind. It's pleasing to the mind. We, we get our word osmosis from this. The word aroma here means fragrance. To just illustrate this, in Genesis 8, 21-22, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the context here is the, the flood, after the flood is over. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Christ's offering of love was pleasing to God. And by doing it, Christ pleased God. And so can we, when we are lived, governed by love. 
And that leads me to ask this question. Does love influence your words, actions, and decisions in everyday life? Do you have the same love that Christ had for you and me on the cross? Do you reflect that love in every word, every action, and every thought that you take? I I tell you what, I don't. I don't. But I need to. I need to love my wife. I need to love my, my sons like Christ loved me and gave himself for me and walking in love. I need to love you as fellow members here at First Baptist and attenders. I need to love you with that same type of love. I need to love my, my, my fellow neighbors and, and others I might come across. I mean, need to love them with that same type of love. The love of Christ that he, he gave me on the cross is the same type of love I'm supposed to show to others. That should be governing my life. Is it governing yours? Is it dictating yours? So when you're, when you're, when you're not happy with your spouse and you want to blow some steam off, are you thinking in ungodly terminology or are you thinking with love? Yes, you may be upset at that person, but are you willing to engage with the motivation of loving that person to address the issue and move on? Does love influence your words at work? When, when things might not be going well and, and people are, are being very harsh and nasty, does, does love influence you so much that what comes out is not nastiness but godliness and care and concern? Does love influence your words, actions, and decisions in everyday life? Third routine and finally, of, of living the new man, conducting our life like that, we reject wicked behavior. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. Wicked behavior, and it is wicked. That's what I, I purposely chose the term here. Wicked behavior is not even an option for us. Several terms that Paul lays out before us. As you think about context here in Ephesus, a, a city that was wholly given to sexual immorality, that was, the, that was the worship of the day, that was how worship was conducted. It was just meaningful for them. So Paul uses words that really hits home. He uses the word fornication. It means unlawful sexual intercourse. It describes anything of a, outside of what God says is okay when it comes to sex. So this includes pornography, prostitution, Affairs, adultery, whatever what term you want to throw in there. It's all of that. We'll say, Pastor, somebody say, Well, Pastor, I, I've never done that. I've never looked at that. You know, I haven't engaged in that stuff. Well, maybe you've not done that physically, but have you done that internally? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is to be taken seriously. It's wicked behavior. Uncleanness means moral impurity. And it's modified by that, that little that three-letter word, all. So all kinds of impurity that are in the world today. We, do, we won't take the time to list them all because we can't. But every type of moral uncleanness, every type of moral um, impurity is not even an option 
Then he adds covetousness, or the idea is to be greedy, desiring more than what, than what you have. So greediness, moral impurity, fornication, sexual immorality, they are not even to be named. The word named here means to, to pronounce or name or word. In other words, Paul is saying here we should not be known by these actions. We are not called to be called greedy, sexually immoral, or morally impure. People shouldn't look at us on the street and think in their hearts that there goes a greedy person. There goes a fornicator. There goes a morally reprobate person. That is not even an option for us. And why is it not even an option? It's not even an option because it's not an appropriate thing for us to do. The word fitting here means to be suitable, proper, or right. Paul is saying that all these active sins are not proper for those who follow Christ. We're not to engage in them, whether mentally or physically. It's not becoming of a saint, a believer, those who are set apart for God's service by salvation. It's not even an option because it's not appropriate for us. Which leads me to say, if you're tolerating this in your life, would you see this as not appropriate for you to do? You might say, Pastor, I'm not a sexually immoral person. You may not be, but how about greedy? You're being greedy in your actions and in your thoughts. Maybe you're engaging in some kind of moral impurity, uncleanness. Would you see that this morning is not even an option for you because it's not appropriate? It's not for those who follow Christ. Notice also that Paul says that wicked conversation is not an option. Neither filthiness, verse 4, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The word filthiness here means behavior that flouts social and moral standards. In other words, shameless behavior. Doing something that is disgraceful. And, and, and here, it, we're, we're talking about speech, because he's talking about foolish talking in verse 4, but conduct also has a play in here as well. So whether it be disgraceful or shameful words or shameful conduct, either one, it's not even an option. Foolish talking here means to, to foolish, silly talk. The idea is empty or vain. It has no content. It's not going anywhere and really detracts from the purpose of the conversation. Jumping down to verse uh, 29 of chapter 4. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. What we talked about last week, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. If someone is engaging in a type of conversation that is foolish, that is empty, it has no place. It's not even an option. It could, it could be you're trying to encourage someone and then someone just comes along with some really bad advice or really empty advice. They're engaging in foolish talking. They're not taking this seriously. And that in itself is wicked conversation. Coarse jesting, here in the New King James translate, means risque wit. Uh, the, the two terms, foolish talking, coarse jesting, Paul makes those words up. Only time used in the New Testament. But here, coarse jesting, the idea may surround the use of dirty language or jokes, but I think more broadly, it conveys the meaning of using sarcasm or humor to cut people down and embarrass them. 
It means, it means using perhaps uh, a, a filthy joke or a, a sarcastic comment against someone to cut them down rather than build them up. That's the idea of coarse jesting. You know, we, we perhaps see this in, in people who struggle with weight. Um, I've had people like that in my life, and, and they become the, the subject or the brunt of jokes. A lot of times unfairly, well, all the times unfairly. That's the idea of coarse jesting. We don't, we don't engage in language that tears a person down. And it could be dirty, it could be foul-mouthed language, it could be very clean language that we're just using different words in different ways to tear a person down. We're not even supposed to engage in that. That's not even an option. And Paul reinforces that by saying, which, is, which are not fitting it's not appropriate for us to engage. It's not appropriate for us to engage in these methods of communication and activity. Why? Because of who we are in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3. We don't say these things. We don't do these things because it's not us. Thanksgiving is how the believer communicates. Rather than tearing people down and talking silly talk or just filthy communication, whatever it might be, we should instead be thankful Express gratitude. That's the other word, giving thanks. So therefore, rather than engage in coarse, derogatory behavior and language, we are to be thankful to God for what He has given us and who He is. We show that thankfulness through our actions and our words. So here's the direct opposite. We're not to do this, we're to do this. We're to give thanks. This is also reinforced by Paul's description in verse 5 that those who act and talk in these ways are not part of the kingdom of God. He says, for this you know. The, the idea here, there's, there's two, two verbs used here. One main verb and one participle verb. And the idea of the two is to heighten emphasis. You could translate it, you certainly know or there is no doubt that you know. And what do we know? What do we know? We know that no idolater, the word idolater means idol worshiper, image copier, one who worships images. Unclean person or covetous. This is what we've already discussed in verse 3. And Paul is using these words to describe habitual, regular activity. No one who regularly worships idols is unclean in their conduct or greedy in their manner has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The word inheritance means guaranteed part of something. So the kingdom of God is not something that the godless pagan has a right to take part in because he has no claim on it. Those who practice these things are not part of God's kingdom. And so what Paul is saying, so if they have no part in God and his kingdom, why are we practicing them? Why are we taking part in what they are doing? Why would we even think to take part in what they're doing? They have no part of us. They have no part of God's kingdom. So why do we take part in them? When you and I tear someone down with our language, we're literally doing something that is totally foreign to the kingdom of God. When you and I are, are, are greedy towards someone, we're envious of someone, we're coveting their, their possessions or their um, perhaps something that they've gained through their work, whatever it might be, we're engaging in activity that is not a part of God's kingdom. 
and is not an option for us. You see how serious this is? This is serious behavior that Paul wants us, God wants us to avoid. And we are to take it seriously. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the, the, the sons of disobedience. Consider this seriously. Have you ever had someone try to make you think something wasn't as serious as it was? An illustration we might use is, is just in general, Billy comes into his mom and says, Mom, Danny found down and broke his leg. But, it, but it's not that bad. It's really not. It's just a little break. It's, you, know, you might want to just wait a few hours and, and make some sandwiches for us and chips and everything, and he'll be fine. Billy's not taking it seriously because he doesn't want his mom to freak out and not take it seriously as well. Well, that's the idea of the word, what he's talking about. Let no one deceive you with empty words. The word deceive means to mislead. And they're doing it by empty words. The word empty means devoid of intellectual or moral or spiritual value. Their deception lacks any capacity to bring truth to their argument. They're trying to, to deceive believers that this isn't really a big deal. Yeah, it's not, God says it's not a big deal, so you know, we're not supposed to take it that way. Paul says those are empty words, those are vain words, those are empty of any conduct. They're meant to deceive you, so let no one deceive you. This is serious. And if alone, if it's not serious because of these empty words and trying to deceive you that it isn't, Paul says this topic is serious because God's wrath is coming, God's judgment is coming. Colossians chapter 3, verse 6 mentions this as well. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The word wrath here means anger, and ang- its anger is sourced in God. It's not just any anger. It's not the anger of a wrath or wrath of a, a leader or a prominent figure. No, this is the anger of God, Almighty God, who is coming in judgment. This isn't your shepherd of Psalm 23. This is your king of Revelation who is coming in judgment. And against whom is he coming in judgment? The sons of disobedience. The ones who have, who have continually acted in rebellion against his laws and deliberately disobeyed. Those people are the reason for judgment. God's wrath is not without cause. God isn't angry because he wants to be angry. God is angry for a reason. Man has deliberately disobeyed, and therefore judgment is coming on that disobedience. So again, by inference, we should ask the question, why would we want to do something with which God is angry? On account of these things, what things? Fornication, uncleanness, why would we want to do them? God's judgment is coming on them. God, God is bringing damnation upon those who regularly practice those things. So why would we want to be under God's judgment? So that leads me to ask this question. Are you making a conscientious choice to avoid the language and actions that bring God's judgment? When that person you meet in a store that you've known for many years you know what they are doing is not right or true. Are you making the choice to avoid that? In the workplace, 
when someone just gets totally ticked off and they're, they're, they're abusing their, their fellow coworkers and they're, they're doing actions that are, are reprehensible, are you, are you trying to avoid that, engaging with that? Maybe it's something that you agree on. Maybe, maybe you're at, mad at the situation at work and, and you're just wanting to spout a little bit and it's the temptation is there to engage in that language and behavior. Are you looking at that and saying, you know, that's not the right action here? Maybe it's in your family. Someone in your family is, is doing things that are, that are ungodly and they're wanting to bring you along. Are you willing to make that choice based upon what Paul says here in these verses that that's not even an option for you? You know how serious it is, so you're not going to do it. Are you avoiding those, those decisions that ultimately bring God's judgment? I think we can safely say that establishing routines are necessary to success in life. We can see that. But more importantly, I hope we've seen this morning that normal life routine, though important, is not as important as spiritual routine. And if we're to live like the new man, walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called, it requires a routine so that we can be successful and obedient. And what is that routine? We mimic God. We copy God in our, in, in our character, in our actions, in our words. We walk in love. We are governed by love. Love motivates all of our actions. Love motivates what we say and what we do. And then we reject wicked behavior. We do not even consider it an option to do those things underneath God's judgment. And as we look at the week ahead, may God help us to establish these routines so that we may find ourselves obeying and loving Him in all that we do and say.